the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Since the coronavirus pandemic, more and more of us have turned to digital forms of payment rather than using cash. Governments around the world are now racing to introduce central bank digital currencies, also called CBDC. China is well ahead in this race. It's been trialing its new digital yuan at the Winter Olympics. The US is now playing catch-up, but in a serious way. The Federal Reserve has released two important papers about CBDC in the last month. But we shouldn't forget India, with its 1.4 billion population, where a new CBDC is due to enter service later this year or in 2023. To discuss the digital rupee and its potential impact, I'm joined on this podcast by Tanvi Ratna, who is a technologist and policymaker based in Bangalore. Tanvi has worked with both the US and Indian governments on technology policy and is closely involved with India's digital currency debate. You can support the New Money Review podcast by becoming a patron of the site. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com, in the right margin. Even a few dollars, pounds or euros a month will help me grow the site and keep giving you access to the best thinkers in technology, finance, public policy and academia. Tanvi, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, so uh, I'm Tanvi Radna. I'm a um, policy analyst and an engineer by background. Um, I run a think tank in India called Policy 4.0, which works on uh, emerging technology. Um, so uh, I have worked uh, previously with our prime minister in India, I've worked with various um Agencies in the Indian government, uh, primarily on innovation policy. Um, so that includes, uh, uh, you know, digital identity, some of the advancements we made in fintech. And um, I was uh, at Ernst & Young for several years, where I was working with several agencies of the Indian government on uh, mostly emerging technology applications in the government. Um, and then eventually I was blockchain lead for EY India um, for some of their large uh, market segments. And uh, uh, I have worked on uh, cryptocurrency related regulation quite uh, globally. I was also a fellow at this uh, DC based think tank called New America, uh, where I did some work on crypto regulation. And uh, yeah, so my think tank works quite actively on uh, digital currency related issues in India. So that includes the CBDC, um, the cryptocurrency regulation, all of which is getting um, drafted right now. And um, we have published a few, uh, you know, we initially had come out with this, uh, my initiation into CBDC was uh, this reverse engineering that my team and I took up of the Chinese digital currency, which uh, we did quite early on in 2020 uh, and we had pieced together its entire architecture and uh, you know figured out all the implications it would have for uh, the whole dollar-based uh, economy. And I think that's what really sort of um, launched us, that study. And we recently uh, came up with a new approach towards uh, crypto regulation and financial stability uh, for our central bank. 
Um, Tavi, I'm going to stop you there. That's a f fantastic introduction. Thank you very much. Lots of topics I want to ask you about uh, during the podcast. I'd like to start by by uh, asking you about maybe to, to give listeners or those listeners who might not be familiar with uh, the Indian payment system, just a, a feel for how much has happened in the last decade. Uh, just for a bit of context, I, I wrote a, an article about India's payment system a, a couple of years ago and cited some evidence from the BIS uh, Red Book uh, in 2011, which pointed out that at the time, India still had over 1,000 check clearing houses and payments regularly took a couple of weeks to move from one end of the country to another. And then in, within the decade, India has moved to what many people say is the most advanced payment system in the world. Could you, could you explain you know, how that happened? Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's a whole show in itself. Uh, but I will try to summarize that. Uh, so, of course, you know, India's digitization journey begins with the idea for Aadhaar. Um, and that was conceptualized in uh, 2009. That's the uh, digital identity system. That's the digital identity system, the unique yeah. identity system. Uh, so, you know, India had for a long time faced... Um, a lot of issues and, um, you know, subsidies and uh, there were a lot of frauds when it came to these uh, beneficiary schemes. Uh, you know, we also had a famous uh, RTI Act uh, where, uh, uh, you know, it was found that uh, for one of the schemes, uh, most of the beneficiaries were actually dead people. Uh, so, okay. That's <laughs> so like, we, like a Russian novel, Gog Dead Souls by <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so uh, you know there there was a lot of the, these issues of fraud, and so it was uh, there was really a need felt for a unique identity system. But how do you roll it out for a billion people, right? And so the whole um, idea of Aadhaar was uh, born, and uh, you know we, there was a very talented team of technocrats of India who worked on it. Uh, led by <clears throat> Mr. Neelkani, who is now the chairman of Infosys, which is uh, in India's one of India's largest tech giants, um, and uh, uh, that's that that spurred our whole uh, digital revolution. Then that idea of digital identity then evolved into uh, the idea of the India Stack, which is uh, basically a India has this approach towards public infrastructure of critical, uh, you know, functions. So uh, when it comes to identity and payment and credentials, uh, the government didn't want these to become privatized functions. Um, and so they have created now a whole stack of functions around these. So we have uh, the digital identity, which is Aadhaar. We have a credential management system called the DigiLocker. And what you mentioned, we have a payments uh, rail called the UPI. Um, and that is uh, considered by many as one of the uh, most advanced systems uh, in the world. It's a near-instant uh, payment settlement, uh, very cheap, very fast uh, infrastructure. Great. What, what impact do you think the uh, introduction of this digital identity system and digital payments infrastructure has had on the economy as a whole over the last decade? Yeah, I think the... Uh, I, I don't even know if um, anyone has managed to fully quantify the impact that this has had 
uh, of course our gdp growth has increased which is uh, you know evidenced by those numbers uh india is now uh, the second largest fintech hub in the world because this basic functionality is put in place and so you have everything from insurance to mobile banking to all these uh, things that have been enabled uh, via the mobile phone india is now also the fastest growing mobile um, adopter of the world so it is uh, this whole uh, india stack approach has really propelled digitization um at one of the fastest paces in the world uh, within india and um, i think india is well set to be probably the largest market for digital services digital financial services um and things we're talking about today which are digital currency um in all of the world i think uh, within you know within this decade uh, you know the whole landscape has transformed from whether, from whether it's how people do business or how uh, you know from the smallest levels to the to the largest levels, right? And I think well, this... Can I just stop you there for a second, Savitavi? Well, I just wanted to ask you about the, the role of... You talked about the India stack as a as a decision, a political decision made by India's government to introduce these different levels as a, as a, as a public infrastructure. Uh, and I guess that is similar to the decision made by the Chinese government. But it's quite distinct from what's happening in some other parts of the world where I think, you know, the US and probably also the UK, the, the, that decision has still not been taken or they've decided to leave a large part of the innovation at the hands of the private sector. What do you think are the pros and cons of the India approach? Yeah, I think uh, if I'm honest, it's still a bit early to tell. I mean, um, you know, in the US, I think the idea of uh, this might even constitute state overreach by some people. Uh, you know, it's uh, just... It's not necessary to, uh, you know, do yourself what the private sector can do, right? Um, and I think that's been a philosophy for a long time. Um, and in China, I mean, uh, in China, I mean, it's been spurred by very different reasons uh, than in India. Um, I think as far as India's story go, there, there have been enough reports of... Um, you know, there's there's multiple complexities that come when you create public infrastructure. Of course, there are uh, common issues that have been reported around data security, uh, data leaks and things like that, which have happened. Uh, there have been, you know, substantial cases of hacks and leaks in the past. It's not... It's not too bad, but, uh, you know, it, it's not completely foolproof either. Mm-hmm. Um then it is also managed by, um, you know, the NPCI, which is a sort of quasi-government um, body, which uh, sort of maintains all this infrastructure. And um, I think there, there are some issues in terms of, uh, you know, even monetizing services like this, right? So for a long time, India had uh, a big dispute with the fintechs uh, on something called the zero MDR policy, where essentially there was... Uh, you know, because a lot of a lot of these services are expected to be delivered for free, right? When they are public services, then there's always a problem of well, who who monetizes this and how yeah. and how do services build and scale if they're not able to, uh, you know, pay for that growth. Um, 
So there have been a host of uh, issues. I think those have been resolved to a great degree now. Um, I think India is now looking at the next wave of growth with the digital currency. Well, I guess, I mean, one one argument for a public uh, sector approach to building the infrastructure is that it then provides the the foundation for the next step, which you just you know said is the is the digital currency. So could you could you talk a bit about about that? It was announced uh, recently in the in the latest budget that India will be moving quite quickly towards the state digital currency. You know what what has been leading the drive uh, to introduce a digital rupee? Yeah, I think uh, India's interest in the digital rupee is not very new. Um, the Ministry of Finance had announced it quite clearly in 2019. So digital currency was uh, often thought uh, of uh, together with the, the cryptocurrency uh, space. So from the beginning, there was a thought process within the RBI of uh, you know encouraging the state version of a, of a digital currency um, versus encouraging uh, you know, virtual assets in general. So I think at that point, uh, since the early days of 2019, there were a variety of reasons for which uh, they were looking into uh, the digital rupee. There was, of course, uh, an interest in, you know, capturing innovation in the financial sector. So India does see itself as, uh, you know, one of the global leaders when it comes to fintech. And so, to keep that leadership, um, this is a space that was considered important, and um, there was an interest early on from our central bank to uh, innovating in the space. Uh, second, we also very much have um, declining use of cash, right, in our country, and I think COVID very much accelerated that. Uh, we already saw a great uptake in UPI-based uh, payments, and I uh, now that trend is only accelerating as more and more services uh, move into mobile, especially. Um, and I think there, there are some um, uh, reasons which are not, I guess, as common uh, to all countries. Um, I think one of them uh, is monetary transmission. Um, and I think that's something that maybe is not a concern that's shared with a lot of countries. But um, you know, in India, we've had these issues <clears throat> in the past with um, the effectiveness of monetary transmission through the banking sector. We, uh, you know, in the COVID times, especially, there were a lot of uh, different measures that the RBI experimented with um, to try and see what could be done to increase um, loan liquidity in, in the country, right? And so uh, even now, as of this year's uh, economic survey, I mean, we have seen an improvement in uh, the monetary transmission to the extent that, you know, lending rates have gone down a little bit. Uh, but it's not really, uh, like, it's not really uh, translating into an increase in money supply, right? So India is suffering with a sort of lower money multiplier, uh, which is a little worrying for the government. Uh, and so I think this is one of the lesser explored reasons why uh, a digital currency would make a lot of sense for India. But then there are a lot of questions that have to be thought through, right, in terms of the interest-bearing nature or, uh, you know, how we deal with the 
uh, financial disintermediation that might occur. Yeah, could you talk a bit more about the the, the the likely design of the digital rupee and 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 questions like that? You know, is it interest bearing or or not? And and how the how the government expects this to impact on the on the financial sector as a whole? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a, a variety of things that I, I think when it comes to uh, let's take one of the most basic parameters of design, right? Whether it's a account based CBDC or it's a token uh, tokenized CBDC, I think uh, in the account based model, uh, to be honest, it's not really seen as creating too much value add for the Indian economy because um, I mean mostly the uh, open market operations and you know that that money supplies already digitized uh, our cash based money supplies <clears throat> already increasingly getting digitized and even now if you see in our capital markets like we have created you know t plus one settlement as well um so if, if we just look at an account based model um there's not too much at the moment that uh, is seen as value, but that will be very much the first phase of pilots that you will see from the RBI. They are going to be uh, in that account-based model. We are going to look at experimentations with financial institutions themselves. Um, but uh, the overriding, uh, the overarching interest of you know the people who are working on the system is more on the tokenized currency side because that's where the real uh, game-changing effect of this, uh, if you uh, so say, would be felt, right? As if you can create a tokenized currency, you can have a retail CBDC. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of questions and experimentation um, around that that's underway. Okay. And and is this, so this, the long-term goal of the central bank is to, you think is to have a tokenized form of, of cash, a digital form of cash? Yes, I would say that, uh, but I, I don't think I don't think they have fully come to consensus on that. They are uh, experimenting. They are in that phase of experimentation. So okay. I wouldn't want to get ahead of myself. But at the moment, it does look like the retail use is what is most uh, interesting. Which is actually quite a so that's quite a bold ambition because in other countries where CBDC is being either introduced or discussed. Uh, you know, people have tended to stick with the account-based system where there's a financial intermediary between the user of the CBDC and the and the central bank. Yes, and I think there they are workarounds. Like if you see the Chinese system, that is a very hybrid uh, model where uh, they worked out basically one of there's a variety of innovations in the Chinese CBDC. And I think when we were piecing it together, the architecture, we were quite amazed at a lot of innovations in there, right? But one of the first and major ones was this two-tiered issuance system. So it is a retail CBDC, uh, but they do link its issuance to the bank accounts. Um, and so you ultimately get the money into your app through your bank account. And okay. this was done more for, you know, preventing any disintermediation of the banks uh, rather than for any other reason. They could very well issue a retail CBDC, but uh, most central banks, as you said, are not interested in performing that retail function. So there yeah. are ways that you can create a retail CBDC, but you don't necessarily need to, uh, you know, manage that whole function yourself. You could you could go the hybrid route. And I think that's what they will prefer in India as well. 
Great. Could you talk a bit about the Indian government's approach to cryptocurrency at the same time as the finance minister announced recently that the country was moving ahead with its digital currency? Uh, that she introduced a, a, a new taxation framework for cryptocurrency, including, I think, a 30% capital gains tax and a proposed transaction tax on cryptocurrency, which I guess would severely restrict the use of um, stable coins, if I've understood it correctly. Could you talk a bit about the the, the, um, the thinking behind that policy? Yeah, so I think India's crypto regulation is yet to come out, right? Uh, this is uh, This announcement is just one of the pieces, um, you know, of the overall sort of policy issues that will be addressed in the in the regulation. And the main regulation is something uh, called the cryptocurrency bill, which will possibly only be tabled after our monsoon session. Um, and so that is the one that will decide on the legality of cryptocurrencies, what is allowed and what is not allowed. Uh, the taxation piece, I think people have read too much into it. It actually does not mean too much um, because it doesn't mean that the government has recognized or legalized crypto uh, because, you know, everything is taxed in India. Even if you launder money, that's taxed and that's not legal, right? Um, but uh, any transactions under the Income Tax Act can be taxed. Uh, and so this is something that was more done from a revenue lens. And of course, the impact on it is going to be quite, quite uh, strong. And uh, it is going to impact, uh, I think, the trading businesses at, uh, at the most because the transaction activity is highest there. Uh, but it's going to impact everybody in this ecosystem, right? And I think it, it is done with an intent to deter that sort of activity. It's a very unusual route. Uh, you don't see many other countries take that route. Uh, but it, it is having its impact. So you can see the repercussions on ground. Uh, even now, it's reported that the day the announcement came out, uh, you know, a lot of money moved out of Indian exchanges and into overseas ones, right? Um, and I think that behavior is only increasing as we go ahead. Okay. Could you talk a bit uh, more broadly about what's going on from the point of view of geopolitics? Uh, and a lot of people have made the connection between China's plans to introduce a digital state currency and a kind of broader geopolitical competition with the, with the US. We're obviously living in a global dollar regime since the end of the Second World War. Um, and some people are making the argument that you know China's investment in infrastructure abroad goes hand in hand with its with its introduction of a Chinese CBDC and that this could become a kind of dollar competitor over the long term. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts from an Indian perspective because uh, India's a country of similar population size to China and uh, you know it's it's obviously the country's digital currency plans are very important. So you know where do you see how do you see things from an Indian perspective this geopolitical angle? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. I think, um, you know, the, the, the challenge here is that the, the geopolitics of money, uh, it goes far beyond uh, digitization, right? So, it, I mean, even the Chinese CBDC, uh, it could help the Chinese central bank with a variety of things. So if you see, you know, their, their resilience in times of economic shock, or if you see their ability to sort of direct money, um, flows and subsidies and things like that. Like, yes, it's giving them a lot of capabilities, but it's not necessarily going to help them have a more open 
capital account, right? Uh, that is very much a monetary decision which uh, the central bank will have to take. So um, <clears throat> whether China's, um, when we looked at this question of how the Chinese CBDC will sort of enhance China's monetary might, we looked at it in terms of, you know, the, the pillars it might strengthen. It's not going to on its own change everything, but it could make, for example, Chinese capital markets more efficient. It could make the Chinese banking system more efficient. It could give a lot of capabilities to the Chinese central bank. But whether or not they will actually move to an open convertible currency, which they are moving to it in a in a stepwise way, but whether... Uh, that will actually happen. It depends on many factors, right? It looks, it depends on uh, the convertibility. It depends on the confidence people have in the economy and so many factors. And I think when it when you look at India's case, um, for India, India is also trying to move into a more convertible currency regime. So India is even more closed as a currency than uh, uh, China and the renminbi, right? So, um I, I do I do think that this uh, system will again give the RBI certain tools that it didn't have before, but I do I don't think that that's a, a decision that will be made because we have a CBDC or because we don't. Um, I think India is also fundamentally not really involved in this currency war. Like India is not really a country that's trying to make its currency adopted at a universal scale right it's uh that's very much a u.s china war um, yeah. and uh i think for india it's more about securing its own economy and bringing efficiencies and investment to its own economy um but then when you look at the dollar side of things there of course it's a very different uh uh, story altogether. Like, I mean, um, even the approaches that the Fed has taken, uh, they are now looking at this open CBDC standard and, uh, you know, what's been developed with Project Hamilton and stuff. That's, a, you know, a sort of democratic approach to uh, establishing the sort of uh, systems on the CBDC architecture of many countries, right? So, um I think the, this is very much a U.S. and China war. I think India is going to sit this one out. But I think for India, it's more of an innovation and competitiveness game uh, than it is about uh, currency dominance. Right. So, so the Indian government is more concerned about improving or increasing the efficiency of the payments system within the country and the capital market, maybe building a more robust capital market within the country rather than thinking too much about international uses. Yes, because, uh, you know, yes, India is a, a trading, high uh, trading country and, you know, it has a lot of um, relationships with many countries, some of which are also under sanctions. Like if you take Iran and things like that, India has a very long standing trading relationship with, uh, with them. Uh, but I think there they have some working mechanisms around gold, and you know they, yeah. they managed or to bar, or barter. I think in the in in the past has been a big big part of those trade flows. Yes, so it could be that in those limited use cases there is some um, use of the CBDC. Um, but I, I I don't think that India is looking at it from an international um, lens yet. Okay, and um, you know, as we you know, embark on 
2022 and this and and this decade where there's a lot of experimentation now with different central bank digital currency models you know you know what are one or two key things for people from outside india to keep an eye on you know so that they can keep track of what's going on because obviously there's a there's a huge wave of innovation uh it's sometimes difficult to pick out the most important themes yeah, I think, see, the important angles uh, when it comes to CBDC experimentation, um, I think the first most important one was the account-based versus token-based. And I think there we're seeing that play out in different countries. So I think a second very interesting aspect where I think uh, different countries' experiments sort of differentiate themselves is privacy. Uh, and I think that's where we might also see some good innovation from India because, uh, you know, we have a long history of public debate and focus on this privacy issue. It started with Aadhaar and uh, we had a very long Supreme Court deliberation on the Aadhaar Act. Um, and this was a fight to make Aadhaar mandatory versus not. And in the end, the Supreme Court ruled in the favor of not making it mandatory uh, solely on the uh, grounds of privacy. And so uh, the central banks also very cognizant of this. And uh, I think there is a lot of focus, uh, at least from the discussions I've had um, before um, on, you know, looking at into this aspect of uh, privacy with CBDC. Um, and then I believe uh, another angle which will be interesting and I think uh, will be a feature of the Indian uh, CBDC is offline payments, right? So uh, just like we saw with China, um, you know, this was a huge innovation that they incorporated into their CBDC, which was double offline payments. Uh, and so you can have both parties offline and still have, um, you know, valid digital transaction with the with the CBDC. And I think that's very much an area that's of interest to a large country like this. Um, it also will do a lot for financial inclusion uh, more than many other efforts we've taken in the past. Uh, but I think it might happen in very different ways from China because uh, here the sort of baseline is very different. Like you can't have very heavy hardware based solutions. And so I think there will be some innovation uh, around that, right? Um, so yeah, I would, I would think these are uh, some features to potentially watch out for in the Indian experiment. Great. Tanvi, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a very uh, helpful and very interesting overview of what's going on in, in such an important uh, economy. So uh, great to talk to you and look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Paul. It's been great to be on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.